Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. My name is Nick Whitney, and this, the 19th episode of our saga, is entitled From Belle Epoque to Cataclysm. Our last episode finished with Europe approaching the last quarter of the 19th century seemingly in fairly good shape. The first industrial revolution had vastly increased the material prosperity of the continent, albeit unevenly. The concomitant social and economic transformations had fostered political revolutions which, whilst failing to unseat autocratic governments, had generally led to political reform and improved conditions of life for the majority. The unifications of Italy and Germany had been achieved at the cost of armed conflicts between states which had been bloody but mercifully short. Stability was now the main goal of the majority of Europe's capitals. And so began what the Americans would call the Gilded Age, and Europeans the Belle Epoque, an era preoccupied less with geopolitics and revolution and more with making money, the second industrial revolution was now well underway, and having fun. And a great deal of the fun was to be had in Paris, as Renoir's paintings of dances and lunch parties attest. The Folie Bergère held its first show in 1872, the Moulin Rouge not long after. Indeed, Paris seemed determined to forget the bitterness and division of the Commune as rapidly as possible, with the Impressionist painters holding the first of their exhibitions in 1874, challenging the annual Salon of the Académie des Beaux-Arts. The accepted rules of painting, line, colour, representation, were simply effaced by an explosion of brushed colours, outdoor and everyday subjects, and an obsession with the play of light. Painting was not the only medium where established canons were cast aside. This was the era of Art Nouveau in architecture and design, all those motifs from nature and curvilinear forms. The element of rupture was emphasised in the name by which it went in Central and Eastern Europe, the Secession Movement, featuring Gustav Klimt, centred on Vienna. Vienna was also, of course, where Dr. Freud would soon begin messing with people's heads. Meanwhile, new technologies, from Marconi's wireless telegraphy to the internal combustion engine to electric lighting and cinematography, all added to the sweetness of life. But the wolf of geopolitics is seldom, it seems, far from the door. And whilst the political architecture of Europe might have been only recently remodelled to accommodate Germany and Italy. It rested on a foundation, the Ottoman Empire, which was fast disintegrating. Not for the first or last time, trouble began in the Balkans. A Bulgarian uprising was suppressed by the Turks with widely publicised atrocities. Russia seized the chance to intervene on behalf of its co-religionists with a success that took it to the gates of Constantinople. The regional balance of power was in jeopardy, so Bismarck intervened, summoning an international congress in Berlin in 1878 to regulate the situation. The Russians got the Bulgarian protectorate they wanted, though significantly scaled back. Serbia, Montenegro and Romania all achieved independence, and Austria, fatefully, was awarded Bosnia-Herzegovina. Even the British seldom active in European affairs in this era, but always a significant presence in the wings, 
collected a prize in the form of Cyprus. Great power harmony was, it seemed, restored. But fear of Russian expansionism had been rekindled, and in 1882, Germany, Austria and Italy concluded a semi-secret triple alliance, in which all three parties made the basis of their security, right up to 1914. The Ottoman Empire's collapse was proving problematic in North Africa too. As long ago as 1830, France had taken over Algiers and was to grab Tunis in 1881, but the big prize was Egypt, the more so once the Suez Canal, Ferdinand de Lesseps's great project, was finally opened in 1869. Egypt's ruler, the Khedive, owned the largest slice of shares in the canal operating company, and British and French bankers poured into Cairo to show him how he could borrow whatever he liked against that revenue stream. Naturally, this was a short road to bankruptcy. In 1875, British Prime Minister Disraeli, his eyes as ever on the need to safeguard communications with India, bought out the Khedive's interest in the canal. Soon after, the British and French wrested control of Egypt's finances, the Sultan in Constantinople, uh, the Khedive's nominal overlord, was prevailed upon to depose him, and when British troops arrived in 1882 to assist his successor put down anti-European riots, Egypt had become, for all practical purposes, a British colony. A colony, moreover, with a tempting hinterland, stretching south into Sudan, where British General Gordon was soon to be heroically martyred at Khartoum, and up to the Nile's headwaters in East Africa. Since the end of the Middle Ages, European interest in Africa, gold and slaves apart, had primarily been to get round it as quickly as possible, en route to the riches of the Orient. Now, in the last quarter of the 19th century, interest grew in acquiring further footholds on the continent's periphery. The new steamships needed coaling stations, and to probe further into the interior. The popular press loved tales of heroic exploration into the Dark Continent, whilst missionaries like Dr Livingstone heightened awareness that the Arab slave trade continued to flourish unchecked down Africa's east coast, suggesting a whole new field of endeavour for Europe's civilising mission. Ah, that civilising mission, a whole new concept of empire less as a collection of spoils for the toughest and most rapacious European nations, and more as a God-given duty owed by Europeans to less fortunate peoples. The white man's burden, in the words of Rudyard Kipling, the British Empire's poet laureate. Think of it as Empire 2.0, and indulge me in a little personal digression. In August 1900, an international relief force fought its way into Peking, lifting a three-month siege of the city's legation quarter, where some hundreds of foreign nationals and thousands of Chinese Christians had taken refuge from the Boxer rebels. The Boxers, so-called because of their roots in martial arts clubs, were a rural insurgency, fuelled by poverty and xenophobia. The relief force was a veritable United Nations, comprising the main European states, plus Russia, Japan and the US, a roll call of the outside powers who had been helping themselves to more and more of China's wealth and sovereignty 
as the Qing dynasty declined. After dispatching the boxers, the powers confronted the imperial government with demands for reparations and compensation for the Christian communities that had suffered loss of life and property at boxer hands as well. One of the foreign missionaries, a Welsh sinologue called William Hopkin Rees, found himself co-opted as a mediator in the compensation negotiations, which he conducted with an even-handedness recognised by both sides. The Empress Dowager rewarded him with an honorary mandarinate. He looks very splendid, photographed in his uniform as a mandarin with the blue button. The eldest of Rhys's brood of daughters, Mifanwy, was an early female graduate of Edinburgh Medical School, sponsored by the London Missionary Society. She married another LMS missionary, Thomas Whitney, who spent many years working in the south of India, where my father Kenneth was born. Mifanwy, perhaps rather more usefully, established hospitals. Small wonder that. Leaving Oxford in the 1930s, Kenneth was dismayed when he failed the medical for the Indian Civil Service and had to settle for a career in the UK Civil Service instead. I recount this family history because it conforms so happily to how the Victorians, Queen Victoria, the personification of British Empire, ruled from 1837 to 1901, chose to regard their imperial mission. 18th century empire building had been an often brutal and rapacious business. But the British, basically decent people after all, had in due course rebelled against the despoliation of India and the enslavement of Africans to work the Caribbean sugar plantations. Empire 2.0 was an altogether more noble enterprise, epitomised by the mural on the grand staircase of the splendid new foreign office building of Britannia teaching her sons the arts of war and peace. Dr David Livingston, also a London Missionary Society missionary, they got everywhere, famously found by the American adventurer Henry Stanley exploring the Central African watershed, was mainly preoccupied with trying to stop the Arab East African slave trade. He was duly enrolled in the pantheon of British imperial heroes. Nor was it just the word of God that the sons, and occasional daughter, of empire toiled to bring to less fortunate peoples, but also the blessings of fair administration, justice, education, improved health, railways, and organised sport. Team sports, of course, were key to the training provided by the British public, that is, private schools, that supplied the empire with the soldiers and colonial administrators that it needed. The ethos was fair play and muscular Christianity, and to judge by the plethora of statues of military heroes that adorn British cities to this day, it was the muscular that preponderated in the imperial pantheon. From the Indian mutineers of 1857 to the fanatical followers of the Mahdi in Sudan, there were always elements of the native populations who failed to get with the programme, and in so doing not only demonstrated their own horrifying barbarity and general unfitness for self-rule, but furnished new occasions for the display of British courage and endurance against the odds. All this in the spirit of service, of taking up the white man's burden. 
Small wonder, then, that subsequent generations of Britons have tended to look back on empire with a degree of modest pride, and can even today be discomforted by suggestions that the received historical picture may be a little short of shade alongside the light. Many in Britain were outraged when woke warriors toppled a statue of a civic philanthropist in Bristol just because the man had made his money in the slave trade. Similarly, it has struck many as downright unpatriotic to impugn the memory of Cecil Rhodes, the man who painted great tracts of southern Africa red and made generous educational endowments, just because he happened to be an unabashed white supremacist. Autre temps, autre meurs, after all. Sadly, however, it has to be acknowledged that not every episode in imperial history redounded unambiguously to Britain's credit, and that for every Briton who fared forth to the colonies with a sense of high moral purpose, there are plenty of others more interested in making their careers and filling their boots, in best buccaneering fashion. Nor, alas, was Empire 2.0 Enlightenment uh, always appreciated by those to whom it was applied. That uh, 1857 Indian mutiny, rebellion, was a mutiny and revolt against the parastatal East India Company, who still ran half of the subcontinent as a corporate fiefdom. Direct rule by the London government ensued, but the Raj, as the new dispensation was termed, actually reigned back on land and social reforms that were judged to have had a destabilising effect. This may have been wise... No matter how well-intentioned, a few thousand foreigners had learned that they interfered with the inner workings of vast and ancient civilizations at their peril. Perhaps best just to focus on collecting the golden eggs. Nor is it easy to detect an enlightened agenda in the two opium wars which the British fought against the Chinese – forcing the imperial dynasty to abandon its efforts to protect their population against the ravages of a trade that realised such splendid returns for Indian growers and British shippers. The British helped themselves to Hong Kong at the same time. Perhaps it was the difficulties they had run into in India, which influenced the British and all the other European, American and Asiatic powers who were quick to join in, to adopt a rather different business model in exploiting a China progressively less able to defend itself. The country was there for the taking, but instead of military occupation, the outside powers concentrated on securing for themselves ever more profitable trade and tariff concessions, along with bits and pieces of coastal real estate where needed for business, immunities, of course, for their own citizens, and, naturally, access for those missionaries. No wonder after this century of humiliation, that today's Chinese leaders seem not overly receptive to Western strictures about human rights and values. A similarly more modern approach was evident in Britain's acquisition of Egypt, where European bankers persuaded the local dynasty to saddle itself with sums of debt it could never repay, and compensated themselves by taking control of the Suez Canal and the national finances. Is this where today's China finds inspiration for its treatment of Africa, one wonders? It would be easy to conclude that Empire 2.0 is nothing but hypocrisy. But that would be unfair to my family, still fondly remembered in South India, and thousands like them, to say nothing of 
All the good and the great in the capitals of Europe who no doubt believe their own civilising shtick. And at least the British could congratulate themselves on never having conducted a genocide, unlike Belgian King Leopold in the Congo. On reflection, perhaps not much of a benchmark. The only conclusion I feel able to draw with any confidence is that it is high time for a re-evaluation of Britain's and other European nations' imperial history. Of course, that can take you into difficult territory. Debates about historical responsibility, debates about reparations. But it is essential nonetheless. Because a nation that prefers to nourish itself with self-congratulatory myths will end up doing the stupidest things. And now we have Brexit to prove the point. But back to our main narrative and the growing European interest in Africa. Medical advances, most importantly the use of quinine to counter malaria, opened the door to the continent's interior. Moreover, despite the advances of the Second Industrial Revolution, international trade, and with it European economies, were stagnating and in need of new markets. Finally, and as throughout the history of Europe's imperial expansion, great power rivalry argued the logic of moving quickly to claim territory, lest others get there first. Central in every sense was the Congo Basin. It was hardly an immediate priority for the established colonial powers, a point not lost on King Leopold II of Belgium, that still new state without a colony to its name. Leopold cleverly advanced his interests in the vast uncharted territories behind altruistic-sounding front organisations like the International African Association. And he secured the services of the Welsh-American Henry Stanley, the celebrated African explorer, to open the Congo River to trade and Belgian settlement. Leopold had effectively secured his own vast new African domain before the rest of the world sat up and took notice. In chancelleries across Europe, big arrows began to appear on small maps as armchair strategists took to speculating about a French drive eastwards from West Africa across the Sahel to the Nile, or a British corridor between Sudan and the Cape, or a Portuguese drive to link up Angola and Mozambique. Things seemed to be getting out of hand. So the old ringmaster Chancellor Bismarck called his last big international conference in Berlin in 1884-5 to try to establish some ground rules. The key outcome was the confirmation of Leopold in possession of the Congo Basin as his personal property. Over the coming decades, he would strip it of ivory and rubber in the course of a genocide costing an estimated 10 million lives. It was not until the new century that word leaked out to the wider world of just what Leopold was up to, eventually shaming the Belgian government into taking over control of the territory in 1908 from their implacable monarch, who, in the best gangster fashion, had the entire archive of his decades of exploitation burned before ceding possession. But uh, back at Bismarck's 1885 conference, Leopold's control met the immediate needs of the great powers, who saw it as a handy way of ensuring the neutrality of this vast central territorial bloc, and thus reducing the chances that they would find themselves in direct confrontation as they moved in from different points on the continent's periphery. 
they pledged to keep each other informed of their advances. On this basis, the starting gun of the Scramble for Africa was officially fired. The scrambling went on with diminishing intensity for the next thirty years. By the outbreak of uh, the First World War, seven European powers had carved up the entire landmass of Africa between them, excepting only Ethiopia, which had repelled the Italians, and Liberia, established by the Americans as a home for freed slaves. And whilst they helped themselves to Africa, it did not escape their notice that there were still other corners of the globe going begging. The colonial powers had settled on a different approach to the exploitation of China, deterred from major territorial occupation by the rivalry of peers and the sheer daunting scale of the country. But pretty much everywhere else was up for grabs. Thus, as the 19th century closed, the British colonised Burma, Malaysia, Singapore and Borneo, while the French took over Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. Siam, Thailand now, was left as a buffer between them. Fast modernising Japan took over Taiwan and established itself on the Asiatic mainland, meeting the Russian expansion across Siberia to the Pacific. Even the Americans, those principled opponents of European colonialism, had a change of heart before it was too late, and in 1898 dispossessed Spain of Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines and Guam, and helped themselves to Hawaii for good measure. The turn of the century represented the high-water mark of Western imperial ascendancy, and there's now really only one way to go. On the whole, it is remarkable that this last grand supermarket sweep of the still unacquired quarter of the globe was conducted largely without the European competitors coming to blows. There were some tense moments, as when British and French expeditionary forces, the former heading south from Egypt and the latter east from Gabon, came into confrontation at Fashoda in South Sudan in 1898, Despite the best efforts of the popular press in London and Paris to whip up war hysteria, the standoff was resolved diplomatically. More generally, and as for example in China, the European powers were at pains to work together, or at least around each other. As the 19th century came to an end, therefore, a prevailing peace and stability in Europe was qualified by awareness that everyone would need to tread carefully if major fallings out were to be avoided. It was a pity then that the new German Kaiser was pursuing his ambitions for Germany with all the finesse of a bull in a china shop. Wilhelm II had come to the throne in 1888. His mother was the eldest daughter of Britain's Queen Victoria, but his attitude to that country was one of rivalry rather than affection. He was, moreover, ambitious, energetic and determined to be his own man. One of his first moves was to sack the 75-year-old Bismarck, dropping the pilot per the caption of a celebrated cartoon. In fairness, the Chancellor had become a domineering old bore. Wilhelm's ambition for Germany was that it should have its own place in the sun. More colonies, sustained by a bigger German navy, supported by Germany's surging industrial production. He saw the Ottoman Empire as a promising sphere for growing Germany's influence, 
and built the Berlin to Baghdad railway as part of his drive to the east. France and Russia were sufficiently disturbed by what they saw of the new Kaiser to conclude their own mutual defence pact in 1898. Britain, too, was getting worried. Vast overseas territories, captive markets and privileged access to commodities and raw materials had raised the mother country to unprecedented heights of prosperity, enabling the British to steer clear of continental entanglements for much of the 19th century. In the closing years of the century, they were able to collect the last available pieces for the biggest empire ever. But there were already presentiments of mortality, symbolised by the ageing Queen Victoria. For one thing, it was again becoming apparent that empire usually meant private profit, but public risk and expense. The case for imperial retrenchment was increasingly voiced, but drowned out by popular enthusiasm for late-stage imperialism. So the government had to soldier on, bearing the costs, for example, of the debilitating Second Boer War, that was 1899-1902, which finally enabled Cecil Rhodes to make a fortune from diamond mining and then carve out his own new colonies, North and South Rhodesia, in central southern Africa. Empire, though emotionally satisfying, was becoming a fiscal liability, at just the time when German economic performance was surging. Germany already dominated the chemical and electrical industries, and by 1914 would be producing half Europe's coal and two-thirds of its steel. Britain's long, happy holiday from real geopolitical concerns was ending, and it was time to engage with the uncomfortable truth that Europe, the only possible source of any real threat to Britain's security and prosperity, again needed attention. The chief product of this new insecurity was the 1904 Entente Cordiale between Britain and France. Formerly, this was largely a matter of tidying up the last rough edges of their respective spheres of colonial interest. Politically, it was an historic reconciliation and the creation of a new partnership, facilitated by the enthusiasm of Britain's new king, Edward VII, playboy and habitué of Paris and Biarritz, for all things French. The Entente was perhaps the conclusive final move in the transition of Europe's geopolitics from the multiplayer concert of Europe of the early 19th century to an uneasy balance of power between two opposing blocs, the United Kingdom, France and Russia on the one hand, and Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey and, unreliably, Italy on the other. Berlin's reaction to the Entente was the Schlieffen Plan, drawn up in secret by the German High Command, the blueprint for a preemptive invasion of France through the Low Countries. Meanwhile, Britain and Germany accelerated their naval arms race. So it is perhaps less surprising that war broke out in 1914 than that an increasingly delicate balance of power survived the preceding decade. Serial crises jeopardised the precarious peace. Russia's shock defeat by Japan in their 1904-05 war sparked a small precursor Russian revolution, with the crew of the battleship Potemkin in Odessa playing an iconic role, and posed destabilising questions about Russia's military effectiveness. The Kaiser made two provocative attempts to undermine France's position in Morocco. The Young Turks' insurrection in 1908 against the Ottoman Sultan provided cover for Bulgaria to declare full independence from Constantinople 
and for Austria to complete its annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, to the dismay not only of the Turks, but also of the Serbs and their Russian allies. All this meant heightened suspicions and sharpened antagonisms across Europe. It would take only the assassination of the Austrian Archduke by a Serbian nationalist, queuing the inflexible demands of treaty commitments and of troop deployment timetables, to precipitate cataclysm. Diplomats despaired. The lamps are going out all over Europe, lamented the British Foreign Secretary. But young men were ready for adventure, expecting a short, sharp conflict which would reinvigorate societies grown soft with too much peace and self-indulgence. Volunteers rushed to enlist as swimmers into cleanness leaping, in the words of the English poet Rupert Brooke. It's enough to make you wonder whether humankind is ever really ready to learn the lessons of history. And this, dear listeners, is the end of the story I promised to try to tell you, Europe's history from Charlemagne to the outbreak of the First World War. I chose to stop there on the grounds that the continent's history since 1914 is all too present in today's recollection. I now wonder whether that is entirely true, especially in relation to the interwar fortunes of Central and Eastern Europe. And since I have so far served you up only 19 episodes when I promised about 20... I think I'm entitled to round off this series with a short epilogue. It will, of course, be a huge pleasure to me if you choose to listen to that too.